Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back and taking another deep dive into crime with us. Please be sure to follow me on TikTok as well as Instagram and using our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. You can find all those links in the episode description. We will also have the timestamps in the episode description, so that way you can skip around as much as you would like. So today we are going to be talking about the disappearance of Brittany Drexel. This case for me, I hadn't heard about it for a long time. I honestly did not even know there was such an update until very recently. And there was an update in this case last May. So I'm going to detail all of that for you. This case went on for so long. The family went through so much. Takes a lot of twists and turns. So get ready, hang on tight, pay attention because this case is just, it goes to a lot of different corners before finally resting. So I do wanna give a trigger warning over this entire case. It's a pretty rough case to cover. We are going to be speaking about rape, sexual assault, and murder a few times. I'm gonna give other trigger warnings just throughout the episode because there's just certain parts of this that may be a little bit too graphic for some to handle, which I completely understand. I will leave a timestamp for you to skip ahead to in the episode description. There's probably gonna be a few in there because there's some uncomfortable parts in this case. So with that, we are going to go ahead and get started. First, I wanna introduce to you Brittany Drexel. She was born on October 7th, 1991 in Rochester, New York. Her parents' names were Dawn and Chad, and Chad was actually Brittany's adoptive father. He was given consent to adopt Brittany by her biological father. And there's actually a cute little story about Brittany's adoption. So he adopted Brittany when she was around four years old. And when they went to get their adoption papers signed so that way Chad could officially become Brittany's father, I guess there's a process where you have to go through and be asked a couple questions by the judge. But as soon as they walked in the courtroom, Brittany immediately jumped right onto Chad's lap. And the judge just saw the connection between them and just said, you know what, go ahead and sign the papers. The judge could already tell that Chad was Brittany's father. So they were just like, you know what, go right ahead, sign the papers, no questions necessary. So I just thought that was a really cute story and it really showed the bond that they shared. Brittany had a sister named Marissa and a brother named Camden and Brittany was actually the oldest of her siblings and she was a really great big sister. She was also very adventurous, she described as being very funny. She loved to play soccer, she was really good at it too. And she was known to be a mixture between a tomboy and a girly girl. So Brittany would ride dirt bikes and fish, but she also loved doing her hair and makeup, so she was a little bit of both. Unfortunately, in 2008, Brittany's parents split up when she was only 17 years old. This did leave Brittany yearning for more independence. I guess when something like this happens in your family that's kind of out of your control, you look for the areas of your life that you can control. So Brittany really wanted to strike out on her own. She's about to turn 18, so this seems very fitting for a teenager. So Brittany decided to make plans to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for spring break of 2009 and she planned to go with two other girls and their significant others. But Brittany wasn't that close to them. They were a little bit older than her. I think they had already graduated high school and Brittany was still in high school. So she wasn't that close to them. I think she was just looking for a way to get out of town and just go to Myrtle Beach because at the time that was the place to be for spring break. Brittany's best friend, Tara Friedman, who she met in high school, wasn't going to Myrtle Beach. I guess she just didn't wanna go or maybe her parents wouldn't let her. Brittany's parents felt 
like, well, if Tara's not going, I don't see why you need to go, especially with older girls that you're not really that close with. So her parents said that she was not allowed to go to Myrtle Beach for spring break, but they did say she was allowed to go to Lake Ontario, which was just a few miles from her home in Rochester, New York. Britney's parents just wanted her to stay a little bit closer to home because Britney's grades weren't the best at the time. They felt like they didn't want to allow her to go, which is honestly understandable. I can understand that from a parent's perspective, but Britney being 17 years old and wanting her independence, she decided that she was going to sneak behind her parents' back and go to Myrtle Beach anyway, which was a 14 hour drive away from her home in New York. That is a pretty bold move to sneak out that far for that specific amount of time. That's pretty bold, but Brittany was dead set on going. So on Thursday, April 23rd, 2009, Brittany and her acquaintances arrived in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Brittany's parents had no idea. So they were staying at the Bar Harbor Hotel at 100 South Boulevard in Myrtle Beach. And Brittany had made a couple text messages to let people know that she was there, but of course she couldn't tell her her parents that she had arrived because they weren't even supposed to know that she was there. So Brittany let her best friend Tara know that she had made it. She texted her boyfriend, John Greco, and she was kind of just keeping him updated on what they were doing throughout the day. She let him know that they got ice cream, went into the ocean, just normal average text messages. Within a day of Brittany being in Myrtle Beach, her texts to John started to turn a little negative. She texted him things like, I'm so mad and they were being jerks. And this was because Brittany felt excluded by the other people that she had come with. As I said, they were a little bit older than her. She didn't really know them that well. I think she just wanted to go to Myrtle Beach that bad that she was willing to go with anyone, but she wasn't really having a good time. So by Saturday, April 25th, Brittany still wasn't having fun. She was just feeling really isolated from the group. But that afternoon, Brittany happened to run into some boys from back home in Rochester who did come to Myrtle Beach. And this really lifted her spirits, made her feel a lot happier just seeing familiar faces and people that she was friends with from back home. One of the boys that Brittany saw that she recognized was 20 year old Peter Brozowitz. And Brittany decided to make plans with him and the other boys in order to get away from the girls that she had come with that she just really wasn't vibing with. So that night around 8.15 p.m., Brittany walked from her hotel, the Bar Harbor, to Peter's hotel, the Blue Water Resort. And she was walking down South Ocean Boulevard. Now the hotels were only about a mile from each other. I mean, Brittany was walking by herself, but she figured, you know, it's spring break. There were a lot of people around on this street. I mean, it's a very busy time of year. So I think she felt somewhat safe because there were so many people around. So once Brittany got to the Blue Water Resort Hotel to hang out with the boys, she gets a text from one of the girls that she had come to Myrtle Beach with asking for her shorts back. Brittany had borrowed this girl's shorts and she was wearing them for her to just get to the hotel. And this girl says, I want my shorts back. And it's like, really? You couldn't tell me that before I left. <laughs> and Brittany was very annoyed. I think she felt that the girl was maybe doing this on purpose or waited for her to leave before she decided to ask for the shorts back. So Brittany had to walk all the way back to her hotel to give them back to her. Now it's only a 10 minute walk. It was about a mile up the road, as I said, but that's still really inconvenient. And you wanna be on the road by yourself as little as possible, especially when you're a young, vulnerable girl in 
such an unfamiliar town. So Brittany starts her walk back to her hotel after only being at Peter's for 15 minutes. And on her way back, she's texting her boyfriend, John, because she's just really annoyed that this girl asked for her shorts back. Again, she felt like she was being petty. So she's just venting to John. And John texted her back saying, please just try to enjoy yourself. And Brittany responded with no. I'm staying in, packing, and going to sleep probably. John replied with, why baby, with a sad face, and Brittany never responded. An hour passed by with still no answer. At this point, John was getting a little bit worried because Brittany was never the type to not answer his texts. So he decides to call Brittany's friend, Tara, and he sounded pretty panicked. He told her he'd been calling Brittany and she just wasn't answering him. So Tara said, give me a second, I'll call her and let her know to call you. But when Tara called Brittany, her phone went straight to voicemail. So Tara decided to leave her a message asking her to call her back because John was getting worried. At this point, Tara wasn't really thinking the worst. She was just assuming Brittany either lost her phone or maybe it was dead and she just hadn't charged it back up yet for it to turn on. It was clear that something was wrong. No one had heard from Brittany in hours and that just wasn't like her. She was always texting and keeping in touch with her family and friends, especially because she was pretty alone in Myrtle Beach. She wasn't really getting along with the people she came with. So she was being even more responsive to the people she knew back home. So the fact that hours had gone by and no one had heard from her, it was clear that something wasn't right. John decided that he had no other choice but to call Brittany's mother, Dawn, to tell her that they hadn't heard from Brittany and they were afraid that she might be missing in Myrtle Beach. And Brittany's mom's like, Myrtle Beach, she's supposed to be in Lake Ontario. So she has no idea that Brittany's in South Carolina at this point. This is the first time she's hearing of it. So Dawn has to call Brittany's father, Chad, and tell him that Brittany is missing in Myrtle Beach. They both were just completely shocked. They said, I thought she was only a few miles from home. I just wanna take a moment to share this part is why it's so important for your parents to know where you are, because if things like this happen, it makes it a lot harder for people to get to you and do what they can to help you. In no way am I blaming Brittany for what happened to her. This is just something that can happen very often when you sneak out or sneak away to places and your parents don't know where you are. This is like a parent's worst nightmare. So once John let Brittany's family know that she was missing in Myrtle Beach, they decided that they had no choice but to go down there and look for her. So Chad stayed home with Brittany's younger siblings while Brittany's mother Dawn, her grandparents, John and Tara drove 14 hours to Myrtle Beach to look for her. They got there into the wee hours of the next morning, Sunday, April 26th. At this point, they really weren't thinking the worst. They just assumed that Brittany was fine and that they were just gonna pick her up and bring her home. When they arrived, they went straight to the Myrtle Beach Police Department in order to let them know that Brittany was missing, but they were already on the case. The police believed that Brittany was just avoiding her family and extending her vacation. They immediately got the vibe that, oh, she's just being sneaky, she'll turn up. So they weren't really treating it as a missing persons case yet, but Brittany's family was not trying to waste any time. So they decided to look for her themselves. And the first place they went was South Ocean Boulevard, the last place Brittany was seen or heard from before she she went missing. They were just walking around up and down the street, showing people pictures of her to see if anybody recognized her. But as the sun began to set on this Sunday, there was still no sign of Brittany. And this is when her family and friends became worried because they knew Brittany wouldn't just leave her siblings and leave her family like that to worry on her own. Like she wouldn't do that. And they knew that. And this is one thing that kind of frustrates me is when you tell the police that something's wrong and they try to tell you, oh no, they're fine. 
If a family comes to you and tells you that something's wrong, something is wrong. They know their loved one. If they know that their loved one is doing something that's very out of character that they would never do, pay attention to that because they know them better than anyone. There were a few reported sightings of Brittany at gas stations and supermarkets just around South Carolina in the local Myrtle Beach area. And this really gave the family hope. But unfortunately, all the tips led to dead ends. So Tara decided to call her mom, Renee, who was back home in Rochester. And she asked her to come down and help search because she actually used to be a private investigator and she had experience with these things. She knew the places to look, she knew the people to ask. So they felt like she would be a great addition to the search team. So while Brittany's family was searching for her, police were doing their own investigation. After this point, I think they're starting to realize, okay, something's not right here. So Detective Tracy Chanaka with the Myrtle Beach Police Department decided to interview the girls that Brittany came to Myrtle Beach with. And they were still there at the hotel and just in the surrounding area. And these girls admitted to the detective that they hadn't really been getting along with her for most of the trip. They claimed that Brittany left the hotel room and just never came back that night. Now, the boulevard was a very busy area. As I said, it was spring break. There were a lot of people driving up and down this road, walking on the sidewalks. So if Brittany was struggling to be freed, if she was being taken against her will, someone would have seen her struggle because it was just that busy of an area. So this made people think maybe Brittany wasn't struggling when she was taken. Maybe someone gained her trust and took advantage of her, or maybe it was someone she knew. And the only other people that were in Myrtle Beach at the time that Brittany knew were the boys from back home that she had went to go visit. So the police department decided to look at them and question them. After talking to the boys, they determined that they had left the motel shortly after Brittany did. But then once they returned to the hotel, they checked out that same night and they even left some of their stuff there. And on their way out, they got into a confrontation with a front desk worker. So. Okay, that looks pretty suspicious. I mean, who checks out of a hotel the same night and then leaves some of their stuff there? It seems like they were leaving in a hurry. Once the boys returned back to Rochester, New York, Myrtle Beach notified their police department about this case involving Brittany. So they decided to question the boys once they got home. And the boys said that, yes, they did leave the hotel, but they went to a party at Coastal Carolina University. And this was the opposite direction of where Brittany was taken because by this point, they had received cell tower data and found where Brittany's phone had last pinged. And we're gonna get into that part a little bit later. Once they were able to see where the boys' cell phones had pinged for the last time, as well as taking witness accounts that verified that the boys were in fact at a party in Coastal Carolina, they were able to rule them out because Brittany was traveling south and the boys were traveling north. So this ruled them out as suspects. Still think it's really weird how they checked out of the hotel very quickly and left some of their stuff there, but mm, I don't know. It's just interesting. Maybe they did it by accident and they were just really drunk. I'm not sure, but it's a bit odd if you ask me but whatever happened, they had nothing to do with Britney's disappearance. So within the next few days, the police find surveillance footage of Britney walking alone the Saturday night that she went missing on South Ocean Boulevard. They had surveillance footage from 8.15 p.m. and she was on her way to the Blue Water Resort to meet up with Peter and his friends from back home. But Detective Chinaka then found footage of Brittany entering the Blue Water Resort after speaking to the managers that worked there. And they had footage 
clear as day of Brittany entering the Blue Water Resort at 8.33 p.m. and leaving 15 minutes later at 8.48 p.m. So this lines up with the story of how Brittany had first arrived to the hotel and she was summoned back to her hotel because one of the girls wanted to get her shorts back from Brittany that she borrowed. All activity on Brittany's phone stopped at 8.58 p.m. So a few days after this, police were able to obtain cell tower data showing where Britney's phone was pinging. And remember I mentioned that earlier. And they found that Britney's phone was pinging on cell towers traveling south of Myrtle Beach at the speed of a car. Her phone then settled in an area 50 miles away, 50 miles south of Myrtle Beach at 11.57 p.m. This was in a very rural area called Georgetown County, which Brittany had no connection to and was very unfamiliar with. But after this last pinging in Georgetown County, her phone went dead and there was no more activity. So this immediately alarmed police because they were like, there's no way that this girl would have gone all the way down here. What reason did she have to be down here? She didn't know anyone there and anybody that she did know there, they were all in downtown Myrtle Beach. They were not down in this rural country area. Police believe that whoever brought Britney down there had somehow gained her trust and maybe taken advantage of her because she wouldn't have just gone off with somebody like that all on her own. So police, family, and friends decided that now that they have an area to search, they're gonna go ahead and call in some forces and see if they can find Brittany. But Georgetown County is, as I said, very rural. It's practically in the middle of the woods. So they had to do a very expansive search because it was a huge woodsy area and they weren't familiar with it. So they gathered seven to 800 volunteers to search with family and the police. But Tara and John were actually not a part of the search just because I'm pretty sure at this point they were still minors and this environment just wasn't safe for kids and god forbid they came across something of Britney's or found Britney the police just didn't want them to be exposed to that so they decided to have them sit out of the search which I think was a good call so police used drones horses dogs and guns to aid in the search and this was a very urgent matter because the environment was just not safe and when I say safe I mean the literal environment we're talking about the swamplands of South Carolina there's gators, there's hogs, there's man-eating flies. It's a very dangerous area as far as the wildlife. If Brittany was out there, they didn't want her to be harmed or disturbed by any of this dangerous wildlife. So they had to work very quickly to find her. But after weeks of searching, there was no sign of Brittany. And unfortunately, Tara, her best friend, had to leave South Carolina and go home. Because I think by this point, spring break was over and school was getting ready to start back up and she just couldn't stay in South Carolina any longer. And I can't imagine how hard that was for her to have to leave without her best friend and still not knowing what happened to her, but having to carry on with life. Tara recalls a moment that she shared with Brittany's five-year-old brother, Camden. She came home and she decided to visit him and check on him because him and Brittany were very close, even though they had a big age gap. As I said, Brittany was an amazing big sister. And Camden asked Tara why she didn't bring his sister home. And Tara was just heartbroken. She didn't even know what to say to him because how do you explain that to a little kid that their sister's missing and they can't find her? You know, that's a very hard conversation to have with someone so young. And Tara just apologized to him and she just felt really bad that he didn't know where his sister was. 
So in October of that year, by this point, Brittany had been missing for six months. There was still no sign of her. By this point, Brittany's family had returned to South Carolina. I think they may have been going back and forth a little bit, but for the most part, they were now back at home. That's another thing I wanted to bring up too. I feel like it's so hard when someone that you're close to goes missing in a town that you're not familiar with that's so far away from where you live because you can't really be as involved as you want because you're just not close and you can't go right there. It's not a convenient drive. It was 14 hours away. But one night, Brittany's father, Chad, was just at home watching sports with some friends, just trying to have a little bit of normalcy, when all of a sudden he got an unexpected call from Brittany's phone number. He was just immediately floored. He immediately answered the phone and was just so excited. He couldn't believe that Brittany was calling him. But unfortunately, it turned out not to be Brittany. Her phone number had been reassigned to someone else and Chad had been calling her number for months, just assuming that it was still hers, just hoping that she would pick up the phone, which honestly, I would probably do that too. And the man that got reassigned Brittany's number, he was just calling Chad's phone to find out why he kept calling him, but he didn't know who it was. I'm not sure if he explained the situation to him or not, but I cannot begin to imagine the adrenaline that he probably felt getting this call from Brittany and just the blow, the emotional blow to find out that it was not her. So in April of 2010, a year after Brittany went missing, her family decided to go back down to Myrtle Beach and hold a march down South Ocean Boulevard where she was last seen. And after the march, they had a candlelight vigil for her. So it was spring break time again, and this brought up a lot of feelings for the family. The police department felt a little bit more invigorated to continue searching because, you know, it's the same time of year that Brittany had gone missing. She still hasn't been found. So they began to do a little bit more digging. And a young man actually called the Myrtle Beach Police Department saying that he might have a video of Brittany from the year before. He had seen a TV special about a missing girl named Brittany Drexel and he recognized her as being the girl in his video. So he called the police department and said, oh, I think I have something that you might wanna see. Police are immediately intrigued and they interview him. And this guy tells them that Brittany was walking down the street one night by herself the night before she went missing on Friday, April 24th. And she was being harassed by some guys while she was walking. And the guy that had this video of her, he was walking too. And Brittany asked him if he would walk with her because she felt uncomfortable. And he agreed. Brittany then ended up going to his hotel room with him and hanging out with him and some of his friends, which honestly, I would not advise going there alone. But luckily for her, he wasn't, you know, too weird. He actually did help her out and walk with her because she was just feeling uncomfortable. And I guess this guy decided to just document the night. So he was taking videos and he had a video of Brittany and he took it around 10.30 p.m. And it shows Brittany sitting on the bed with her legs crossed. She was on her phone. Brittany texted a lot. She was always on her phone. And she was then shown sitting in a chair next to a balcony, still on her phone. And the man behind the camera, who was also the guy who came forward, he was just kind of talking to her, taking goofy videos, you know, nothing too crazy. And police did not consider him a suspect, but it was very interesting that he just so happened to recognize her. So this gave them more insight into Brittany's personality 
as well as another timeline to work with because this showed that Britney was pretty trusting of people and this could have been how she was taken. This made police think that maybe she went off with someone and they ended up taking advantage of the trust that she had given them. So the following year in May of 2011, Britney's family decided to appear on the Dr. Phil show to bring more awareness to her case. By this point, she'd been missing for two years. There still weren't any leads. So they wanted to do what they could to get Britney's name out there even more. And Dr. Phil actually brought Peter Brozowitz on the show, one of the guys from home that Britney had met up with in Myrtle Beach. Britney's mother Dawn was not happy with him. She confronted him and asked him why he didn't walk her daughter back to her hotel. Why did he let her walk by herself? Peter responded with, I was on spring break. I didn't want to babysit anybody. And that to me sounds pretty insensitive. He was probably drunk at the time for all we know and didn't even think about it. But I guess at that time in 2009, maybe things just weren't as bad then as they are now. So people weren't thinking about that. It created a lot of complacency in people, I'm sure. Because I don't know if human trafficking or kidnapping has gotten worse or if it's just more known, but there's a lot of people now that I'm sure at that time were just walking places by themselves and not really thinking of what could happen or allowing people to walk by themselves and not really thinking the worst. So a pretty insensitive thing to say to her mother, if you ask me. So in 2014, Officer Wendy Powers of the Georgetown Sheriff's Office, which is where Britney's phone was last tracked, she decided to check on the whereabouts of one of her old parolees the day Britney had gone missing. And this parolee's name was Raymond Moody. He had an ankle monitor on at the time Britney had gone missing because he was on parole for some very serious charges that I'll get into. So she decided to check and track where his ankle monitor was that day, just in case he may have been near or around where Britney had been. So Raymond Moody was a man from Georgia Georgetown, South Carolina, and he was actually described by Officer Powers as being nice and well-mannered, but he was a sex offender and he did time in a California prison for rape. Eventually, after he did his bid in prison, Raymond returned home to Georgetown and he was living in Georgetown at the time Brittany went missing. So Officer Powers decides to check and see where he was and she ended up tracking him down to just a few miles from where Britney's phone last pinged. Call it women's intuition, call it what you want, but she had a feeling. She said, let me just check this really quick. And for her to have found that he was that close to Britney in the time she went missing, she knew that something was wrong. And she decided to bring her findings to her captain at the Myrtle Beach Police Department. So they decided to dig into Raymond Moody's file and they found that he had been convicted of sexual assault and rape and sentenced to 40 years in prison, but he had been paroled after serving 20 years. And they found that he admitted while he was in prison that he wouldn't stop assaulting women if he was freed. They also did some digging into his personal life and found that he was involved with a man and a woman at the same time. And they decided to reach out to the woman and her name was Angel Voss. So they decided to question Angel and find out what she knew about Raymond's past and what he may have possibly done. So Angel comes into the police department and she's speaking very, very freely. She let them know that Raymond did not drink, he didn't smoke, and he didn't do drugs. But 
she did expose some of his very dark fantasies. Raymond would tell Angel that he had fantasies of snatching young girls off the street, raping them, and dumping them. And he preferred shorter, smaller girls that couldn't fight back as hard. Why she was dating a man that was saying things like this and attracted to him honestly makes no sense to me. Angel then told police that Raymond told her he had a tent that he would set up in a remote area in order to do these things and attack these women. Police then asked her specifically if she knew anything about Brittany Drexel, but she admitted that she couldn't really remember much about that time period in April of 2009, but she did say that Raymond mentioned Brittany's name at one point or another. Police then decided to leave Angel alone in the interrogation room because she was being recorded. They didn't know if she knew this or not, but they wanted to see how she would behave if she was left alone. And Angel was seen on video saying, God forgive me for being with this crazy man. What if he's doing it again? God, please let him get caught. Police felt like something wasn't right with Raymond, so they got a warrant to put a tracking device on his car. And they tracked him to work sites because he was a woodworker, so he was there for work. But they also tracked him to a cemetery. But at this time, they weren't able to determine why he was there. Police then obtained a search warrant to search the Sunset Lodge in Georgetown, which is where Raymond was living at the time Brittany disappeared. But police didn't find any helpful evidence to link him to the crime. So as police were starting to look back into Britney's case, it started to gain national attention and it gained the attention of a woman all the way in Vallejo, California named Carrie Harding. And she decided to call South Carolina officials and came forward saying that she was Raymond Moody's first victim. And she decided to tell her story about her encounter with Raymond. And I do wanna give a trigger warning. We are going to be speaking about rape and graphic details. This is not something you're comfortable with hearing. I'm going to leave a timestamp in the episode description for you to skip ahead to. So in 1983, Carrie Harding was eight years old at the time and Raymond was in his early 20s. Now at this time, Raymond was living near where Carrie lived with her family in California. Now it was a Sunday afternoon and a young eight-year-old Carrie was walking to her school to meet one of her friends in order to play with them. But as Carrie was walking, Raymond was standing by his car and Carrie noticed him. As she walked past him and his car, Raymond unlocked his passenger door. And just like that, he snatched her from behind and put her in the car. That's honestly one of the scariest things I've ever heard. That just is everybody's worst nightmare. Carrie was so immobilized by fear that she couldn't even scream. Raymond drove her down the road a few miles to a remote area where he raped and sodomized her. And she was only eight years old. Carrie was so scared, she really thought she was going to die. And she suddenly told Raymond that she had to go to the bathroom. So he decides to open one of the back doors of the car and he told her to go in the grass, which is just so dehumanizing, especially for a little girl. Raymond was holding her hair to make sure she didn't run while she was using the bathroom. But as Carrie went to the bathroom, blood came out. Raymond got so scared and spooked and kind of realized what he had just done that he immediately let her hair go and Carrie wasted no time and ran. There were actually some people standing in the distance that didn't see what had happened. So Carrie ran towards them and screamed that she had just been kidnapped. So these people immediately took her in, protected her and called 911 as well as Carrie's mom. She was then taken to a hospital and examined. So while Carrie was in the hospital, she was briefly questioned by police and she was so paralyzed with fear 
clear that she couldn't even remember what Raymond looked like. This is a pretty common occurrence for your brain to block out traumatic experiences to kind of protect you from them. But as she started speaking to police more, she started to gain some more memory about what had happened and what she had seen. Carrie suddenly remembered that Raymond's car had a green bumper sticker on it. This green bumper sticker was used to enter a naval base called Mare Island that was local in California. So this really narrowed down the amount of people that could have attacked Carrie because at the time she didn't know who this man was. After a few days, Carrie was brought into the police station with her mother and was shown mugshots to try to identify the suspect. As she was flipping through the book, they were flipping through She was like, no, that's not him. No, no, that's not him. But the very last picture in the last folder was Raymond Moody. Carrie immediately just looked at his picture and froze. She was so scared that she wouldn't even say it was him. And Carrie's mother just knew something wasn't right. She knew the physical reaction that she had when she saw his picture. She knew that this was the man. So her mother said, is that him? You can say it, just let us know. And she really gave Carrie the courage to finally come forward and identify that that was in fact Raymond Moody, the man who had attacked her. Now, Raymond was already in police custody for other similar incidents. He ended up pleading guilty to rape, sodomy, and kidnapping. And as I said, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison, but he only served 20. And after he was released, he came home to Georgetown, South Carolina. And honestly, the parallels between Carrie's case and Brittany's case are pretty apparent if you ask me. Going missing while walking down the street by yourself, getting put into a car, taken to a remote area. I mean, people are starting to think that maybe Raymond has a pattern. I mean, he had done this before and he also told Angel that he had fantasies of snatching girls off the street and taking them to this remote area that he had in order to carry out these attacks. So during the present day, Raymond came into the sheriff's office to renew his sex offender license and police decided to question him while he was there. They wanted to see if they could get some info out of him. All Raymond said was he had nothing to say to them and that they're good detectives and they'll figure it out, which sounds like an admission of guilt if you ask me, but they still need more evidence. So police searched for about another year and they really didn't find a whole lot of evidence regarding Raymond's involvement in the case. So the FBI at this point was involved and they dug a little bit deeper and they found some new evidence that had nothing to do with Raymond Moody. And in 2016, the FBI decided to fly Britney's family into South Carolina, all the way from New York to share the evidence that they had found. And at this point, the evidence was not made available to the public. It was only made available to Britney's family. So I'm gonna give another trigger warning. We are going to be, you know, going into some graphic details. And if this is not something you're comfortable with, I will leave another timestamp in the episode description for you to skip ahead to. Like I said, this case is very graphic and I wanna make sure you guys are as comfortable as possible. So I'll leave 10 trigger warning timestamps in the description if I have to, if that means that you don't have to hear details that you're not comfortable with. So the FBI had laid out the information that they had found and they had heard, and they decided to tell this to Brittany's family. According to the FBI, an informant in prison decided to come forward and tell them that they had seen Brittany at a stash house in a small town called McClellanville, which is in South Carolina, a few days after she went missing. And a stash house is just where people store drugs to either use or sell. The informant claimed that Brittany was being sexually assaulted by a group of men, and when she tried to to run away, they shot and killed her. Then they took her body away from the house. Other witnesses that were supposedly in this stash house also came forward and said that Brittany's body was thrown into an alligator pit. 
but this was never confirmed at the time. This was just all what they were hearing. So the day after the FBI presented this information to Britney's family, which I can't imagine how hard that was to tell them, they decided to hold a press conference in McClellanville, this new location that had popped up because up to this point, all they knew about was Georgetown. But now they had another small town in South Carolina and they told the public all this information that they had and that they believed Brittany had been killed. Now, up to this point, no law enforcement had come out and said they believed Brittany was no longer alive until this press conference because up to that point, they had just been saying she was missing and had disappeared. But there were no suspect names given at this press conference. But the FBI did have a suspect. They were focused on a man named Timothy Taylor that had been named by this informant. Now, Timothy Taylor had a record of armed robbery from years prior. He was actually the getaway driver. He was arrested for this charge just so they have a reason to hold him and question him about Britney's disappearance. So the informant claimed that the person who shot Britney when she tried to escape the stash house was most likely Timothy Taylor's father. The informant then claimed that he himself went to the stash house to talk to Timothy's father about money. And then he claimed that he saw Brittany try to escape and that she was pistol whipped and brought back into the house. And moments later, he heard gunshots and some people in the house came out with a rug, rolled up and took the rug outside and put it in the back of a truck. The informant believed that Brittany's body was in that rug. So at this point, they're getting all their information from the informant, but they're not really getting much from Timothy Taylor. And they decided to release him on bail after being in jail for a year for this armed robbery getaway driver charge. After Timothy was released, he gave a TV interview in his lawyer's office and he denied killing or kidnapping Brittany. He claimed that he had no idea who this informant even was giving the police this information because he wasn't even there. After this interview was televised, people had a hard time believing that Timothy was any way involved in harming Brittany because of his physical appearance. Not only did he have a pretty small build, he was actually missing an arm due to an accident as a child. So people found it pretty hard for him to be able to carry out this act. And at this point, the informant story just wasn't enough to convict anyone. So the case really stalled after this. I'm sure this was so hard for the family. I mean, they have this huge break in the case. They get flown all the way down to South Carolina for them to be told it. And they probably think that finally something's gonna happen just for the case to go cold. That's what I say, the amount of twists and turns in this case. I mean, I admire the FBI for continuing to look in with this much effort after it had been so long, but God, the family has been taken through the ringer with this case. Just their hopes being let down has probably just been so difficult. I can't even begin to imagine. So three years after Timothy Taylor had been released from jail and the case went cold, the informant actually decided to come forward and reveal their identity, which is a pretty bold move because a lot of people don't like jailhouse snitches. And his name was Taekwon Brown, and he was currently serving a 25 year sentence for voluntary manslaughter. He decided to give a series of phone interviews to the same reporter that interviewed Timothy Taylor years back. And he claimed, that the Monday after Brittany went missing back in 2009, he saw her in the stash house and she was the only girl there. In another one of the interviews, he changed his original story and he claimed that Brittany wasn't killed in the stash house. She was killed in a trailer in a town called Jacksonboro, which is much further from Myrtle Beach. It's a hundred miles away. So there was no longer 50 miles away in Georgetown. Now it was a hundred miles away in Jacksonboro. So this not only 
changed the location of where Brittany may have last been spotted, but it also changed her potential whereabouts. So this really changed everything. I mean, now he's saying that Brittany was alive in the days following her disappearance and that she wasn't even in the area that police thought she was in. Taekwon Brown then names a different shooter. So it was no longer Timothy's father. It was a man named Nate. And according to Taekwon Brown, Nate used a double barreled shotgun to kill Brittany. Taekwon then said that her body was buried in the backyard. So his story just changed dramatically. And this really makes him not that credible because there's just so much, it's a lot different than what he originally said. But by 2018, Taekwon ended up retracting all of his claims and admitted that he lied, which I just don't understand. I don't get why people lie so extensively about things like this. Maybe he wanted a lighter sentence and he wanted to be able to bring the police a suspect so that way he could get some of his charges knocked off, but that's just so selfish. If you're lying, they're not gonna find anything. So I don't understand what he thought that was gonna do for him. And this just causes the family so much more pain to be taken on such an emotional roller coaster ride of thinking that they're finally gonna find the person that hurt their loved one just to find out that this person was lying the whole time. I mean, it was Taquan Brown's words that prompted the FBI press conference and them telling Britney's family all of these things. I mean, this was the first time they had heard that Britney was possibly dead. And it was all based on this one informant's story. They had no other evidence to suggest this. I also feel bad for Timothy and his family because yes, Timothy had committed crimes. He wasn't a saint, but he wasn't involved in Britney's disappearance. But for so long, his face was plastered on TV as being the person who was responsible for what had happened to Britney. Having their names involved in this really ruined their lives. But the FBI never came forward and said that they were wrong about the Taylors. They just said, we're going a different route. They never came out and publicly exonerated Timothy Taylor and his father. And this really did affect their lives. So by 2020, Britney would have been 29 years old. She had been missing now for 11 years and there was still no justice for her. The FBI decided to bring in a new team to look at the case. Once they began to reinvestigate, familiar names started to come back up, such as Raymond Moody and Angel Voss from back in 2014. Now recall that Angel was dating Raymond at the time and she had given all of this information about his dark fantasies, just being creepy as fuck. Well, police they didn't forget about Angel. In fact, they had decided to secretly record a phone call between her and an unnamed friend after they first interviewed her because they just felt like there had to be something there. In this phone call, Angel was defending Raymond and she seemed to be very upset that he was being suspected by police, which sounds very different than what she was saying in her initial interview years prior, where she was pretty much exposing Raymond for all the creepy things that he would say to her. Now this audio hasn't been released to the public, but Angel also claimed that she was involved in Britney's disappearance and was even responsible for killing Britney. Now Angel wasn't arrested because this still just wasn't concrete enough. There still wasn't a lot of evidence but they continued to keep their eye on her. In the call, it was obvious that she was drunk and she could have been lying. So they really didn't have much to go off of, but investigators definitely kept this in their back pockets. So in 2022, two years later, police decided to go back and review the surveillance footage from the night Brittany went missing. And the footage that they were specifically focused on was when she was walking back to her hotel, walking down Ocean Boulevard, coming back from visiting Peter and his friends from their hotel, because this was the last time Brittany was seen. And 
And they took a closer look at the surveillance footage and they spotted a Ford Explorer driving down the road headed right towards her. And they were able to trace this car back to none other than Angel Voss's brother. That's pretty concrete if you ask me. And this was grounds to call Angel back into the sheriff's office for questioning. Now at this time, Angel was working as a nurse and she was actually still with Raymond. The way that they got Angel to come back into the sheriff's office was they told her that they wanted to talk to her about something completely unrelated. So she came, it looked like she came after work. She showed up in scrubs and you know, she got there not thinking anything. But once she got there, they questioned her about Brittany almost immediately. But Angel had a pretty positive disposition. She was behaving very cheery. She was very forthcoming, telling the investigators about her life, her family, her time with Raymond. And she was even laughing with the FBI agents. So they were trying to build a rapport with her before they just laid it on her. And after a few hours, they decided to ask Angel Angel about any cars that she used to drive back then, wanting to see if they could get her to slip up and talk about this Ford Explorer that was seen in the surveillance footage coming right towards Brittany right before she went missing. But Angel said that she really didn't remember. I mean, that it was a long time ago back in 2009 and she just wasn't sure. Then they just directly asked her straight up if she had any involvement in Brittany's disappearance and Angel adamantly denied this. Investigators started to read quotes to her from the conversation that they had secretly recorded of her and her friend where she was coming out and saying, that she was responsible for killing Brittany. But for some reason, Angel thought that they were talking about Raymond. She thought they were quoting Raymond, not her. So she immediately got upset and she accused the officers of trying to frame him. And she said that, I don't wanna hear those quotes. Stop trying to frame Raymond. I don't wanna hear it. I don't wanna be a part of anything that's accusing him, which again, just doesn't align with her initial interview where she just gave all this information about how creepy he was. It doesn't make any sense. She suddenly has this undying loyalty to Raymond after she told the police that he had dark fantasies about snatching girls off the street. So Angel says that she knows Raymond didn't do this. She doesn't wanna be a part of anything accusing him. And she gets angry and storms out of the interrogation room. But an officer downstairs, he stopped her from leaving. And he let her know that those quotes were not from Raymond. They were from you. You are the suspect, not him. And this changed Angel's mood almost immediately. She was like, oh shit. They're investigating me now. So she wasn't long going back to that room and trying to clear her name and her whole attitude changed. She was like, oh, I thought they were talking about Raymond. No girl, we're talking about you. Angel decides to address the call, which I'm sure she probably didn't remember making this call because at the time she was wasted. And she claimed that, oh, she was just lying in the call. She was drunk. She was just trying to protect Raymond. I didn't really do this. She claimed that she would never hurt anybody. She also suggested that she may still have the phone that she used when she was recorded on that call. Investigators thought this could be gold. I mean, that phone could hold so many answers. Police decided to obtain a search warrant to search Angel and Raymond's house to find Angel's phone. But unfortunately, they never found it. So FBI agents decided to meet up with Angel and Raymond in a nearby church parking lot while the search was going on. And Raymond got out of the car and he told the agents that he had a surprise for them. And in May of 2022, Raymond was officially in custody and he had confessed to the rape and murder of Brittany Drexel. And Raymond decided to tell his story in a Dateline interview with Keith Morrison. And Raymond decided to detail his account of what happened the night Brittany went missing on April 25th, 
2009. And again, I do wanna give a trigger warning. We are going to be speaking about rape and homicide. This is not something you're comfortable hearing. I will leave a timestamp in the episode description for you to skip ahead to. So Raymond said he was in the car with Angel, that Ford Explorer. They were driving down South Ocean Boulevard when he saw Brittany walking down the street by herself and he decided to get her attention and she came over to the window. And Raymond told her that they were drinking, they were smoking weed and he asked her if she wanted to party with them. Now, it was known that Brittany did not like weed. So her family was like, mm, this sounds a little bit sus, but okay. And according to Raymond, Brittany was contemplating whether or not she wanted to get into the car, but ultimately she decided to go with him and Angel. Raymond then claims that the ride with Brittany started out pleasant and that they were just making conversation. But for some reason, he couldn't explain why Brittany suddenly stopped using her phone as soon as she got in his car. He claimed that Brittany was distracted by their conversation and just wasn't on her phone. But Brittany was known to text all the time. She was always texting her friends. She was always texting her boyfriend. It wasn't like her to not respond to people, especially when Brittany's boyfriend had asked her a direct question and he was incessantly calling her. And he even texted her at 10.26 PM that night saying, please call me. She definitely would have answered these text messages if she was having a pleasant conversation with a stranger. I mean, pretty sure she would have prioritized getting back to her family and friends before she would have prioritized having a conversation with Raymond because she didn't know him. So they're driving down the road and Raymond drove the car to a place called Pole Yard Landing, which was a boat ramp in South Carolina. And this is where Raymond had a tent set up in the woods. Now remember, Angel said that Raymond had a tent in a rural area where he would take girls and attack them. In the first police interview, Angel said that she had never seen or been to this tent, but that she knew about it. But Raymond's account of what happened that night places Angel at the crime scene. So goes to show she most likely lied in her first interview. Raymond then says they all got out of the car and they went over to the tent and they all started talking and smoking weed. But again, recall, Brittany's family said she was not a smoker. She didn't do all of that. So already this makes Raymond's account sound a little fishy. At some point, Angel left and she said that she had to go meet up with her son. So at this point, it was just Raymond and Brittany and they were all by themselves. And it was at this moment that Raymond claims he decided to rape Brittany because they were alone. He claimed that this wasn't his initial plan, but he took the opportunity to do it because there was no one else around. The way that he explains this just makes me really uncomfortable. It's almost like he's bragging in a weird way. It's like he's proud of the fact that he did this. And he made a comment saying how it's not like the movies. And he said that 99% of the time, his victims are calm and cooperative. Now, the fact that he has a reference point to measure people's reactions to his assaults just goes to show this man had no business being out on the streets. He had no business being released from prison. I mean, you shouldn't have a gauge of these kind of things. And it almost seemed like he was bragging. He was like, my victims never struggle. My victims are always cooperative. Almost suggesting that they enjoyed it in a way. He was just so creepy. And while he's explaining his story to Dateline's Keith Morrison, he's literally like reaching for a cup of a drink of some sort and just drinking it. He's recounting this horrible moment like he's talking to his friend about the weather. How can you take a sip of your drink while telling such a graphic story? It just goes to show he was way too comfortable and way too used to doing things like this. Raymond then said after he raped Brittany, 
he strangled her. And he said that he did this because he didn't want her to go to the police because then he would go back to prison. He was on parole at the time. But if you really didn't want to go to jail, you wouldn't be doing things like this. You would be doing what you could to stay on the straight and narrow. You wouldn't be continuing to repeat the same offenses that got you in prison in the first place. So after Raymond strangled Brittany, he took her body to the woods. And it was after this that he claimed Angel came back. When Angel asked where Brittany was, he told her that Brittany had left and went to go meet up with some of her friends. Honestly, I just feel like Raymond's account is just not the most accurate. He's trying to make it seem like Brittany went with him willingly to this tent in the middle of the woods in a rural area that she wasn't familiar with. I mean, who would do that? That just doesn't sound right at all. It's almost like he's trying to make it seem like he didn't kidnap her, and that everything was up to Brittany's consent up until the time she was assaulted. I just have a feeling that's not how it happened. Now, Raymond was known to be very calculated and he was good at manipulating people's emotions and making them feel sorry for him, but I'm not falling for it. So because Raymond's account of things just didn't sound very accurate as far as how Brittany ended up at the tent, police decided to give their own account of what they think happened that was probably a bit more accurate. Investigators believed that Brittany got in the car with Raymond and Angel willingly after they offered her a ride to her hotel just a mile down the road. And they think that Brittany felt comfortable getting in the car because there was another woman in there. This is often used as a tactic by men to lure women in and give them a false sense of security. But in reality, the woman is usually involved in the crime. Now, Angel has never been charged in connection with Britney's kidnapping or murder, but police do believe that she's had some involvement. They just don't have enough evidence to arrest her. But it's pretty obvious in Raymond's account of things that he was trying to protect Angel from any conviction because he gave her an alibi that, as far as I know, hasn't been confirmed. So... At this point, Angel could be involved, but we don't know. I personally think she's involved, but again, there's just not enough evidence and she has not been convicted of a crime at this point. Raymond then led investigators to Brittany's body and she was buried 10 miles away from his campsite where he had killed her. She was buried on property that was actually owned by a married couple that had no idea and were completely uninvolved in the case. So I'm sure that was very hard for them to find out that a young girl that had been killed 13 years earlier was buried on their property and they didn't even know. Remember when police tracked Raymond to a nearby cemetery? Well, Raymond would park at the cemetery because it was a quick walk to where Brittany's body was buried. So this shows that he would visit her grave. And finally, after 13 years, the family was given some answers and a sense of closure because they were able to locate Brittany. The family came down to where Brittany was buried and they prayed with law enforcement and they all just had this moment of, yes, of course, sadness, but just relief that they were finally able to find her. And one of the owners of the land where Brittany's body was buried, again, they were completely uninvolved and had no idea. She decided to ask Brittany's father, Chad, if she could plant a tree there in Brittany's honor. Chad was absolutely all for this. He agreed. And he thought this was just so touching. It would give the area a little bit more meaning this, that this is where she was found and that they were finally able to gain the sense of closure. Raymond Moody was charged with murder, kidnapping, and first degree criminal sexual conduct. He pled guilty to everything and he was sentenced to life without parole. Raymond was also given two consecutive 30 year sentences for the criminal sexual assault and kidnapping. Raymond was 62 years old when he was finally caught. And Raymond came out and said, I was a monster 
was a monster then, was a monster when I took Brittany Drexel's life. I don't have the words to express how horrible I feel and I felt ever since that day. I'm very sorry. Honestly, I just don't wanna hear a damn thing this man has to say. He repeat offended over and over and over again. Even when he was in jail, he said he was probably gonna do it when he got out. I don't think he feels bad. I mean, he's disgusting and he's exactly where he needs to be. So now I'm gonna play a few victim impact statements from the trial that were given by Britney's family. This first statement was given by Britney's mom, Dawn. What gave you the right to put your hands on my daughter? You are a disgrace to your parents, to your own children, for, to your family, and any friends you have left. You are a serial rapist and a child predator. You should be ashamed of your actions, especially having three daughters of your own. This next statement is given by Brittany's brother, Camden, who is now all grown up. So I want to live for her, and I'm wearing a cross with her today, and... I keep it with me every single day, and I just want to say I'm living for her and making the choices that she would, but on my own, and I believe that she's guiding me all the way, and thank God that we found justice and can end this horror story and move on with our lives by keeping her in our thoughts. Thank you. I really admire Britney's family for never giving up on her and always fighting just as hard as they did the day she went missing. It's something that you just hope you never have to go through as a parent and as a sibling. And they went through a lot for so long. So I'm really glad that although they obviously didn't get the outcome they were hoping for, they were finally able to have justice and bring closure to their family. I couldn't imagine not knowing what happened to her ever, you know, that being your loved one, not ever getting the answers that you deserve. Honestly, we may never know the true story of what happened to Brittany. I just still think Raymond's account of things is pretty off and slightly fabricated. I still think it's odd that he gave Angel an alibi. I highly doubt that she didn't have any involvement. But again, she hasn't been convicted of a crime or charged with anything. Even though they may not have all of the answers, at least they have the one answer they were looking for and that's that they were able to find where she was. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and wrap up this episode. I do want to give another note about just being safe when you're in unfamiliar areas, especially during spring break. I know sometimes people go, they go out, they have fun, they kind of let their guard down, but just always be aware of your surroundings and never get in the car alone with anyone, even if they are offering you a ride because you just never know what could happen. Thank you guys so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon.